Good morning, Redeemer. It is another beautiful and very hot day here in Dubai, and we have the privilege of gathering together as God's people to come before Him, to worship Him, and to sit under the preaching of His good word. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chris Lejeune. I serve here as one of the elders. And this morning, we continue our eight-week look over the summer at the Psalms. As I mentioned last week, there, there, there are six main genres that we see in the book of the Psalms. We see Thanksgiving Psalms, Royal Psalms, Psalms of Lament, Psalms of Praise, Psalms of Trust, Wisdom Psalms. And last week we looked at Psalm 11, a Psalm of Trust. This week we continue considering some of the different genres we find in the Psalms. And we'll be looking at the psalm that Vianne just read for us. So if you haven't already done so, let me encourage you to open your Bibles up to Psalm 77. Before we dive into our text this morning, let me pray. Oh, Father God, I do come before you in weakness. Lord, the weight of your word is a heavy one. And yet, Lord, even in a cry of lament, we find hope, we find joy, we find peace, we find your mercy. So Father, as we consider this psalm this morning, a psalm of lament, Lord, I pray that you would be preparing our hearts even now to know that we would have the freedom to come before you, to pour out our request to you, and that we would walk away in hope gazing upon you for your glory in jesus name amen evangelist and missionary george Mueller once said that the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety we live in a world that is not as it is meant to be where fear, stress, doubt, worry, and anxiety are very real aspects of everyday life. Ever since the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this world has been corrupted by the vileness of sin. The reality is there's not an aspect of life that has not been defiled by the grotesque nature of sin. This was, of course, the warning that God had given to Adam and Eve in the garden when he put them there. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Sadly, we see this come to reality after an Adam and Eve listen to the lies of Satan. They reject God's rule over them and they eat. They eat of this fruit that he commanded them not to do. In that moment, their relationship with God, broken, severed. Which means that our relationship with God is severed. And we start to see the repercussions of this rebellion almost immediately. They're now experiencing shame at being naked. Shame and guilt that they'd never experienced before. 
We jump to Genesis 3.16 to the woman. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you, sh you, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. From being God's people in God's perfect place under His perfect rule. Adam and Eve have now been exiled from his presence, banished to live a life of hardship filled with strife and anxiety, looking ahead in hope that maybe one day this curse would be broken. So why do I bring this up when we're considering a passage in the Psalms? Well, if you recall last week, one of the things I said is, is one of the beautiful characteristics of the Psalms is, is how genuine they are. They express genuine emotion. I mentioned that quote by Crutchfield. It says, the psalmists express a wide array of emotions in their poems, ranging from strongly negative like rage and anger to positive emotions like praise. He goes on to say, we all feel emotions. It's part of being human. The poems in the Psalter demonstrate how to channel these emotions in ways that are authentic and honest, as well as healthy and positive. And one of the ways that we can express these emotions is through lament, which is what we're seeing in our psalm this morning. To lament is to express oneself in grief, a passionate expression of grief and of sorrow. And as we look around the world, we're constantly faced with the implications of the fall, of this rebellion I just referenced of Adam and Eve. We look at our people made in the image of God are twisting those images through LGBTQ agendas. We see people fighting for the right to murder unborn children. That's not how it's supposed to be. We see another politician benefiting from blatant corruption as people in their own country starve. How is that fair? Where is the justice? We're faced with job loss, with, with mounting bills. We ask God, why now? We have to say goodbye to another loved one, father, child, a spouse, a mother, passing away way too young. We cry out, where is God? We are faced with so much hurt and pain and suffering in so many aspects of our life. And our passage this morning reminds us that not only are we able to bring our complaints and our cries to the Lord, in fact, this passage encourages us and shows us just how to do that. It also shows us why we have hope and where we ultimately find that hope. This is a psalm of Asaph. 
In 1 Chronicles, we're told that Asaph, along with others, are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. This is a song or, or a hymn. It's for the choir master. It's to be sung according to Jeduthun, which is most likely a tune. And the psalm seems to have been written during a time of deep personal crisis, pain, and anguish. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Asaph seems to be in a place of utter turmoil. In sheer desperation, he turns to the Lord. He cries out to God. That's exactly as it sounds. He's raising his voice in desperation to the Lord in the hope that he will find peace. He cries out to God day and night. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. And this paints a picture for us of this humble, unwavering prayer. But no matter, no matter how long, no matter how hard, no matter how right the prayer it was that he, he must have prayed, his despair, his sorrow was such that there was no comfort. There was no peace. There was no release. Even though his eyes are fixed on the right place, they, they are fixed on God, the one and true comforter, the one who, who would bring peace. He fails to find relief in his prayers. He's failed to find comfort for his soul. Even in the midst of anguish, he's fixing his eyes on God. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. He knew to meditate on the truths of God. But instead of finding rest, just more sorrow. When I remember God, I moan. Remembering God's past mercies seemed to, to do nothing. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He's not finding rest. In fact, he, he, he's finding even more anguish. His spirit faints. It literally means like his innermost being is completely and utterly limp, unconscious. And that's what happens when someone faints. They pass out. They go unconscious. That's his current state. As the mercy that he's in desperate need of, this peace that he is longing for, just seems so far completely unreachable in his present situation. And then these first three verses seem to be a section that comes to a pause. That word selah that is in your Bibles, it's not a word that we know the exact meaning of. It probably says in your Bibles that is a musical or liturgical term. But what it does do is that it helps us give structure and flow to the text that we're looking at. So in this case, it seems an appropriate place to take a moment to just pause or, or break. Which when you consider the intensity 
of which Asaph is writing here, you almost feel that a break is needed, a moment to, to catch your breath. Friend, is this you? Is this describing your life right now? Do you need a moment to catch your breath? I don't know what your current situation may be, but as you hear the words of Asaph here, are you hearing him cry, as you hear him cry aloud to God, friend, are you crying to God? You feel maybe that life has seemingly just swallowed you up. You're seeking the Lord, but there is anguish, there is pain, there is desperation. There is this depression that you feel each and every day as you are seeking Him. You're trying to bring it all to Him. You're on your knees day and night, yet your soul refuses to be comforted. Friend, if this is you, I want to encourage you this morning with this. Don't feel like you're doing something wrong by, by being open and honest with God. That's what we're seeing here. You're not doing anything wrong by pouring out your soul to the Lord. You don't need to feel guilty about pouring out your complaint to Him. That's what we're seeing in, in these first three verses. Even in His anguish, in His desperation, He is being honest. He is pouring out His soul to the Lord. He feels He has the ability to do that. We aren't reading that he's in anguish, that he, he longs to pour out his troubles, and yet that somehow that, that is the wrong thing for him to do. In fact, it's exactly what he should be doing. It's exactly what we should be doing. When we are in the slough of despond, when we are in the deepest, darkest valley, let us cry out to the Lord. Let us pour out our complaints to him. We can be sure as we'll see in a little bit, that even in the seeming silence of these unanswered prayers, seemingly unanswered, we can be certain that God is not absent. Let's continue. Look at verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. The anguish that Asaph is facing is such that his nights are sleepless. He finds no physical rest. It's something that he's attributing to God. Because no matter how much he sought answers and comfort, God seems to offer him no relief. I mean, how many of us can relate to sleepless nights filled with rushing thoughts of worries and doubts and many anxieties that, that just seem to rush upon us the moment our head hits the, hits the pillow? He continues, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. This trouble now seems to be at a point that is just so overwhelming, so debilitating, that even just to open his mouth, to utter a single word seems impossible. Verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, with no more words to say, Asaph starts to to think back to years gone by. I said, verse 6, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. He cast his mind back to, to happier times, to times where things were the way they were meant to be. 
When, the night, when at night his song was not one of anguish, but was of hope, was of joy. Songs that had previously brought him comfort, but now seemingly failed to bring him any peace. Looking back seems to only have increased his depression. We are told at this point that his spirit makes a, a diligent search, perhaps even looking for, for solutions, for, for reasons for his situation. And this only draws him deeper and deeper into anxiety. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Having done a, a diligent search, Asaph now seems to come to some concluding rhetorical questions. And these are not questions that encourage or, or spur him on. Rather, these are questions that are filled with almost this resolve, this acceptance that this is his lot. This is what the rest of his life is going to be. He seems to be trying to come up with reasons for the depression, for the anguish he's faced. Really, well, the heart of the matter here is that he's feeling abandoned by God. And how easy is it for us to do the same thing when we are in such despair, even trying to remember the good times, even trying to remember God's faithfulness to our lives in the past, remembering those times where things were just as they were meant to be, but in our present circumstances, rather than filling us with hope, rather than renewing our spirit, these memories seem to just leave us all the more depressed disheartened, wondering, will we ever experience God's favor again? Stephen Lawson says, such is the exaggerated reasoning of a discouraged soul. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Asaph's starting to convince himself that, that God is actually now withholding his love. He's holding back. Convincing himself that God has failed to keep his promises. Friends, when we find ourselves in these situations, we need to be so, on, so careful. We need to be on guard because this is where Satan will look to get a foothold. Think about the Garden of Eden, how he twisted God's words, making Adam and Eve believe something false about God. In the case of Adam and Eve, that, that God was somehow holding something back from them. That God had only really given them half the truth. We need to be so careful that we do not fall into the same snare, doubting God, questioning Him. One writer says this, has God forgotten to be merciful? No. But the psalmist was starting to believe this. Has he in anger withheld his compassion? No. But God was seemingly restraining his tender love toward him. These questions are negative, reflecting his depressed state. However, voicing these questions would soon 
push him closer to God. And at the end of verse 9, we once again see that word selah. And it seems to suggest that there needs to be another pause, another break. Now considering that this is a hymn, one almost gets the idea that this is where kind of the, the, the key change would come in, right? Up to this point, everything has been in a, a minor key, slow, sad, this depressing dirge of the situation that Asaph finds himself in, this lamenting cry of hopelessness. But, but that all seems to change as we get to verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Up to this point, Asaph has been meditating on his life, remembering God's favor in the past times of his life. But now his, his focus seems to be different. I will, he says, appeals to this. Says, he says, I will, he says, appeal to this, to years of the right hand of the Most High. So he now seems to take this attention off himself and now begins to truly focus on God, on who God is and what he has done. To the many years that God has, God has shown himself faithful, has shown himself as unchanging to his people, Asaph now begins to draw hope. He begins to draw hope on God's saving acts from the past. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Asaph reflects on the miracles that God has worked in the past. This new focus seems to have brought with it this new resolve. The work of God in the lives of his people in the past seems to now strengthen his faith. With this growing encouragement, he continues on this affirmation of just who God is. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people. The children of Jacob and Joseph. This is what God has done. It's as if the questions and the doubts that he previously had, he's now finding answers for. Verse 7, remember, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No! Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. God is holy. There is none like him. He works wonders and miracles. He has made himself known and he has redeemed his people. God has always, always been faithful. He has always remained steadfast and he is always unchanging. And now Asaph can expect God to do the same even in this present moment, even though life seems to be overwhelming and hopeless. What God has done in the past, He is able to do again and again and again and again. Referencing Jacob and Joseph was, was highlighting how God had always been faithful to His people. Even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. 
And we once again see that word Selah. This seems like a good place to, to have a pause, maybe an instrumental moment, a chance to catch one's breath. Not now, not because of anguish, but because of this encouragement, this, this resolve, this strengthening of faith, they're being reminded of just who God actually is. One particular event seems to come to Asaph's mind. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. This is a, a, a reference to the parting of the Red Sea when God rescued his people from the hand of the Egyptians. He uses this poetic language to describe what happened, almost as if tempted to think that his situation might have been too great for God to redeem, too great for God to bring him out of. The saving of the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh is what comes to mind. When you want to talk about a, a miraculous work in a seemingly impossible situation, the armies of Egypt led by Pharaoh himself bearing down on the Israelites, this vicious army behind them, this sea with no way of crossing in front of them, people crying out to Moses, is this why you brought us out of Egypt so that we would die here? But God, God tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea. We're told that an angel of the Lord went behind the Israelites in a pillar of cloud to block them from the Egyptian army. That's miraculous in itself. With Moses' hand stretched out over the waters, God sends a mighty wind, and the waters of the Red Sea part. They separate, creating this dry land for the Israelites to walk through. This is the God who does mighty deeds. This is the God who works wonders. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. God's mighty work, His intervention is on full display for all the people to see. As the pillar of cloud brought forth thunder and lightning, shaking the earth, keeping those Egyptians at bay. This was no mere cloud seeding event that just happened at the right time. This was the very hand of God at work. His mighty right hand. In what seemed to be an impossible situation, God's way of saving, His way of salvation, was not the people's way. It's not Asaph's way. It's not our way. Verse 19, Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Our passage ends in a very different place from where it began. From groaning and, and crying out to the Lord, being in a day of trouble, we now end off here with Asaph recounting the salvation of God's people from the hands of an Egyptians in a way that was utterly impossible, walking through the Red Sea on dry land from a situation 
where rescue and escape seemed utterly impossible. This passage doesn't end giving us any indication that at this point now, Asaph's circumstances were completely different. We have no idea how much time he may have still been in despair. But what we do see is renewed hope, a renewed faith found nowhere else but in the Lord. I actually love where Asaph finishes. The event that he recalls comes as as Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years. Remember, they came, just 70-odd people. Uh, Joseph was in Egypt. Jacob comes, brings all his family with them. And over 400 years, they had grown to to close to a million people. Life at that point had been prosperous. They were in a peaceful land, a time of peace. And then there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. From this time of joy and peace, they now find themselves in a situation of slavery, anguish, despair, crying out to the Lord. And in his time, God reveals himself and redeems them, rescues them in a way that they never imagined. Think as well from the fact that at the end, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years, 400 years of silence. God seemingly nowhere for his people, and yet what do we see? In his perfect time, he reveals himself in the person of Christ in a way that people never imagined. A king born in a stable. He redeemed them. He's redeemed us. He's brought about salvation in a way that no one ever expected. In both times, God revealed himself in the most incredible way that led to salvation. For Israel, salvation from Egypt and slavery. For us, salvation and eternal life through Christ. In his time, in his way, in a way that we never could have imagined. So what do we do with this? As we sit here, 2023, already in the second half of the year, so much has already happened. I know that for many of you sitting here this morning, life is not where you thought it would be when the clock struck 12 and we went over to January 1st. Loved ones have passed away. Jobs have been lost. Relationships have been broken. Health diagnoses have been given that you were never expecting. You find yourself overwhelmed with the burden of despair and anxiety. What do we do with Psalm 77? Well, let me offer four points of application that I pray will encourage you today. The first thing that we see from this text is that we are to cry out to the Lord. Now, often for some reason, there seems to be this idea, this notion that no matter what you're going through, 
before you actually come to the Lord, you need to kind of have everything all together. You need to have the right words. You need to be articulate and, and have these long, eloquent prayers that you can say to the Lord. That's not what we're seeing here. These first three verses we looked at are full of raw emotion. This is someone who in desperation is not worried whether his words are the right words. He's not worried about whether he's, he's, he's speaking scripture back to God. No, he's being open. He's being honest. In desperation, he's coming to the Lord. Friends, do you feel the freedom to do the same? If not, let me encourage you to do so. Let me encourage you to get down on your knees and be honest with God. Bring your hurts, bring your frustrations, bring your anger, bring your questions to the Lord. Now, it's not just the example we see of Asaph. Think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that he went to the Mount of Olives to pray, that he went down on his knees and he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Christ, on his knees, pouring out his request in agony, honesty and yet we know that he was not in sin he wasn't sinful in doing this he wasn't sinful in in bringing this prayer to the lord because you know christ was without sin find courage in that friend do not hesitate even in agony to cry out to the lord the second thing that we see from this text is that we are to be on guard Often in the midst of these struggles, as I mentioned earlier, is when Satan will try to get a hold of you, will try to cause you to doubt, try to cause you to worry, try to twist God's words, cause you to, to question God's mercy, cause you to question whether God really is faithful, if He's ever been faithful. Don't believe these lies. One way to fight that is the third thing that we see in our passage this morning. Third thing I want to encourage you with, and it's this. Know God's word. Know the scriptures. As Asaph cast his mind back to recount the wondrous deeds of the Lord, he would have gotten that knowledge from, from reading the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible. It's here where he would have read about the Exodus and, and how God rescued his people. But it's not just reading and meditating on God's Word for yourself. It's, it's passing it down. Much of Israel's history would have been passed down from generation to generation. Parents would have told their children, would have told their children about the great deeds, the mighty works of the great God of Israel. Parents, are you telling your children about God? Are you teaching them His Word? Are you passing on the truths of his miraculous works? Let me encourage you, if you haven't yet started, start now. There's no time like the present. 
It doesn't need to be something, again, that is perfect and, and happens every night. I know that, that can be daunting, but just start off with once a week, maybe even tonight. Start off with, as a family, coming together and, and reading the, the passage that's going to come next week. In this case, it's Psalm 33. Talk about it. Pray through it. Encourage one another with it. It doesn't need to be an hour long. It just needs to start. And you can build up from there. If you don't have children, and even if you do, let me encourage you to volunteer with Redeemer kids and, and youth and tweens. It's an opportunity to, to teach God's Word, to, to share God's Word, to tell the good news of Christ, to tell the children of Redeemer Church of the mighty works of His right hand so that they would know His Word. They would know who He is. And then fourth, learn to lament well. While we see in the psalm the sorrow and angst of Asaph who is faced with a trying situation, he doesn't stay in his despair. Learning to lament, learning to express your grief openly and honestly before the Lord means like Asaph, you don't ultimately stay in that sorrow and angst. I'll be honest, your situation may not change, but your response to your situation can change. And where you're finding your hope and your rest and your peace can change. One way to, to get into this practice of, of learning to lament well is, is writing your own psalm. We did this a few years ago here at Redeemer in one of our equipping classes. And I think it's something that we can all learn and benefit from. So step one, pour out your complaint before God. Write it down. Write your complaint. Write the words, the frustrations, the anger, the, the questions. Write it all down and pour it out before God. Secondly, review His promises and the ways that He has been faithful. Not just in your life, but in the lives of His people. The lives of those who've come before us and, and the fact that He will continue to be faithful for the years of the lives that will come after us. Find rest and comfort in Jesus. The one who, who has taken our greatest need, who has, who has reconciled us to the Lord. Through his life, death, and resurrection. Find comfort in that, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, this life is not the be-all and end-all. We have a future hope that is to come. Because of Christ, find your rest and your comfort in him. And then fourthly, let others know that they can too. Tell others about the good news of Christ. Tell others about the mighty works of the Lord, not only in your life, but in the life of His people. Let people know where they can find their hope, their joy, their rest, their peace. Friends, whatever you're going through now, God is working something. He's working something in you to produce something. Maybe it's to draw you to, him, to himself for the first time. 
Maybe it's so that you would get to the end of yourself and have nowhere else to go but to Him. Friend, is that, if that is you, don't hesitate. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Put your trust in Him. Put your faith in the Lord, the one who has done the miraculous, the one and true living God. If you do not know the Lord, I just want to share these words from Second Peter. It's a warning, but it's, it's an important one. Second Peter chapter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient. But our time here will run out. Turn to the Lord. Christian, if, if you're the one who is in a, a place of depression, of despair, of anxiety, feeling like there's no hope, I actually want to encourage you with these very same words from Second from Peter. You might have been in this situation for a week, a month, a year, but do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you. God is patient. He's not absent. He's not slow in fulfilling His promise. Know that He is working out His perfect plan, whatever that may be. And His perfect timing He's working it out to very often work in you in a, way, in a way that only He can to produce what only He can. Lament can be a way for us to find rest and hope in this truth when the waves of despair seem to just be drowning us, pushing us further and further down. Remembering that the same God who created the heavens, the same God who created the earth and all that we see, the same God who created man, the same God who rescued his people through the Red Sea, the same God who provided miraculously for them in the desert, the same God who sent his son to earth to be the propitiation for our sins, the same God who raised his son from the dead is the same God who redeemed you, is the same God who gave you new life when you had rebelled against him. It's the same God who brought you here to Dubai. It's the same God who has been providing for your needs. The same God who gave you the job that maybe now is the one that you've lost. It's the same God who is sustaining your life. Even now, whatever your health situation may be, He is the same God who brought you here this morning. And He is the same God who will see you through to the end, no matter what you may be facing. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. As one author says, no one is exempt from such shadowy valleys, not even the strongest saint. In such sinking spells, the righteous man must strain, train and discipline himself to refocus upon the victories God has already given to his people in the past. 
Times of great distress can be faith-building and soul-strengthening as saints reflect upon the mighty works of God in generations past. Such a backward look provides encouragement to the downtrodden heart, drowning in despair. God has worked powerfully in earlier times and is fully capable of doing so again today. I quoted George Mueller at the start of this sermon. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Friends, as you learn to lament and cry out to the Lord, may this be true for you even today. May you be finding true faith and seeing anxiety come to an end. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you as those who, as we confess, are, are overwhelmed with all the, the worries and cares and, and stresses of this world. From job loss to death, Lord, we feel burdened, we feel broken. Lord, we thank you that your word is so rich that your, your word gives us the words that we are to pray to you. It, it teaches us how to come before you. Lord, may we be a people who do that, who, who come before you, who present our prayers to you openly and honestly and confidently. May we be a people who find our hope not in our present circumstances, but in the hope. We find our hope in the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is unchanging, who has redeemed us, who has made a way for us to be in His presence forever. Oh Lord, we look forward to the day when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, when all tears will be wiped away, and we will rest and find peace in the presence of our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.